Welcome to the Revenue Lounge, a podcast for revenue operations professionals who want to understand the various facets of this important go-to-market function. In each episode, the team at Nectar interviews revenue warriors on how they are reimagining revenue operations in creative and disruptive ways and what are their secrets to building a scalable and predictable revenue engine. Let's get started. Revenue operations, or RevOps, is the engine that drives revenue growth by aligning all revenue-facing departments and ensuring they work together seamlessly. Our guest today has navigated this complex landscape of revenue operations, and we'll be diving into a range of topics that open up the core challenges and strategies that keep them at the forefront of their industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Revenue Lounge podcast. I am your host, Randy Likas, and joining me today is Colin Gerber. Colin is the Vice President of Revenue Operations and Strategy at Secure. He has over 12 years of experience in revenue operations, sales operations, and business operations. He's passionate about building and scaling operations and strategy functions that deliver value and impact to the business and the customers. Hey, Colin, thanks for so much for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Randy, for having me. So I'm looking forward to the discussion, Colin. I've been studying your LinkedIn profile and what you've been up to the past 12 years, but I'd love to just kick the conversation off and, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about your current role at Secure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I've been at Secure for, I guess, a little over a year and a half now. As you mentioned, leading revenue operations and strategy. Really how we define that there are here is basically any kind of like uh, revenue driving function. This is like the operational component, which supports and guides it. Right now, how I have the team divided up, it's really into uh, three pillars. The first pillar being go-to-market strategy and operations. So your core sales operations, CX operations, as well as team supporting marketing, and then all of our post-sales top of funnel stuff. So that's the core like forecasting, pipeline lead management, process, things around CPQ, CLM, deal desk, like that kind of all sits like in that group. Second group really being our commercial systems team. So that's really Salesforce, our productivity stack, everything connected into it working really closely with the likes of our business intelligence team, IT, kind of you name it. That team runs in out of like an agile sprint, um, very similar to the product or engineering team. And they are really the product owners of our internal go-to-market systems. And then the third pillar being what I call kind of performance and pay. So it's really quota compensation, planning, as well as things around forecasting and working really closely with the likes of accounting, finance, FP&A, and then our commercial leadership around uh, quota and compensation design and operationalization and management. Wow. So it, it sounds like you guys have really taken a very holistic look at all revenue impacting functions and incorporated that under the, the revenue operations you know, function in, in, uh, overall. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't like that when you first got into revenue operations, right? It's probably been, you've worked for small companies, you work for big companies. We'd love to just hear a little bit more about your story. Like how'd you get into revenue op- operations and how has your role sort of evolved over the years? Yeah, definitely. You're spot on. Revenue operations as it sits today didn't really exist like five or six years ago. Really, when I started off, it was sales operations. And that was really like the second iteration of sales operations because prior to, I would guess, like 2009, 2010, really the function of sales operations sat in a bunch of different groups. Marketing was doing a little bit of it. There were sales admins who were doing a little bit of it. And then other pieces sat with like IT. So when really I came into the workforce and started out as more of like a generalist and I would say more of like a sales support role. The company I was at the time, which is it was called Alien Vault, it's now AT&T Cybersecurity. As they grew, 
the need came to really consolidate the functions all together into, or not functions, but pieces of the function all together into a singular function that really owned everything from top of funnel lead management, Salesforce, improvement management, iteration, forecasting, pipeline management, quota compensation, reporting, analytics. So those were like the, the initial pieces that were sales operations, but it really was sales, like pre-sales specific. There really wasn't even the thought for a post-sales org and really supporting it in the same way. So I'd say in the SaaS world or the technology space, as companies got a little more sophisticated, a little more data-driven, it started out that all these other functions would start getting their own operational kind of part or piece within it. So then you had these large companies with a bunch of siloed operational functions everywhere. Marketing had their own, CS had their own, even pre-sales solution consulting, they might've had their own. Of course, sales had their own, and even within different segments of sales, they had their own. So yeah. it was really a lot of groups doing very similar things, but it ended up being siloed and there was a lot of duplication of efforts, miscommunications, like basically the customer lifecycle, customer journey was very disjointed because you would have one group, maybe they had the operational function a year before the other one. That group got super sophisticated. The other group was, you know, a little archaic, a little nascent. So if you have one piece of the customer journey that is super sophisticated, super automated, but the other pieces are not, it doesn't really do much good and something's going to break. So really fast forward to 2017 or 2016, 2017, that's really where like companies like, we need to put all these groups together. Like number one, we probably have a bunch of headcount that is not being fully utilized. Number two, they're probably all doing kind of the same thing. And number three, the company and the customer life cycle is just completely disjointed and not really progressing the business. Cause we do, like I said, we have these sophisticated functions in one area, but other areas it's not. So that's like kind of where revenue operations came in and it's defined different from company to company. But at the end of the day, it's all these core operational functions under one umbrella, touching yep. all the different parts of the customer life cycle and all the revenue generating teams. I think when you talk a little bit about these compartmentalized groups that are doing their own thing, and I think the need for it to evolve really comes from aligning people around a common uh, objective, right? And that common objective has to have a, a defined strategy and, and, and planning excellence, really, to execute across it, it, it well. Can you talk a little bit about that in, in terms of the context of revenue operations? Like, how, how do you drive that that strategy and that planning excellence? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that really starts with the greater kind of company planning process and what are the targets? What are the agreed upon KPIs? How do we track these? How do we talk about these? Who's involved? And really setting a solid plan and revenue operations is an integral part of that planning process. Really, we are the connective tissue between the go-to-market functions, marketing, product, you name it, and really tying that in with the kind of information, context, analytics needed for a finance team to actually put the plan together. Then from there, you have your goals and targets for the year. So it's like, where are our gaps right now? Is it resourcing? Is it tooling? Is it process? Is it some sort of enablement? That's really how you do your joint roadmap planning. And you tie those initiatives, or I would say some are more, you know, how we think like a mid or long-term project or a quick, easy wins. How do we tie these in with getting to the goal and meeting the needs and the gaps in the org? And that's really what, you know, having the revenue operations team partner with all these different leaders across the organization, really string it together because we do touch all these different pieces of the company. And we also own their systems, tools, and processes, as well as their analytics. So ensuring that you are doing joint roadmap planning and identifying gaps that will help us reach goal once we plug them. Yeah. We, we, we talked to you know several leaders like yourself who, who talk about like 
they all come from different places. So sometimes revenue oper operations reports up through the finance organization. Sometimes it's through the, the sales organization. If you truly have a CRO, it's it's to that CRO. Where, where have you found the most success as far as having revenue operations sit in that org, org structure? Yeah, throughout my career, different companies I've reported, depending on the size of the company and the level of leadership or types of leadership they had, it's early stage or typically reporting into a COO. Or if you have like a really good like VP or SVP of sales who kind of holistically gets it, it's like owning all of revenue. And like you said, a more mature late stage venture or a publicly traded company, it's typically a CRO or a CFO. Most recently here at SoCure and in my previous role at VGS, I've rolled up into finance under a CFO, which based on our peer or sister teams being really close with accounting, finance, FP&A, legal, our P&E or people HR teams, it's been really I think a great orientation of the team and has really led to tighter collaboration on a lot of the GNA back office stuff. Having a little separation from the GTM teams, tightly aligned to them, you are governing things like compensation, forecasting, analytics. You kind of want to have like be like kind of like objective, fifth estate kind of thing where you are close but not too close, able to look inward and have a little more objective opinion or take on things and be able to spot stuff as a little more of a outside supporting function rather than completely embedded. Yeah, agreed. So one of the things I think revenue operations leaders struggle with sometimes is they have so many stakeholders that they're dealing with and, and they get asked to do a lot of things, right? You get sucked into the delivery of the business. So how does a, a RevOps leader stay aligned with their, their key stakeholders and, and, and really stay at the, the strategy level as opposed to getting sucked into the day-to-day? The -day? Yeah, I think that comes down to team organization, how you're aligning resources. Right now, I really have the team aligned to specific groups of stakeholders as more business partners, similar to what you'd see in a P&E function or a product marketing function. We have very specific people on a team working with very specific stakeholders. So we don't have duplication of efforts um, within our team. Or if someone from those groups needs something or they want something on the roadmap, they know specifically who to go to. Like I said previously, we're working pretty heavily out of a Jira ticketing system where we do all of our project management. We do require business requirements for things. So if someone's trying to solve for something, we don't want to like them to solution it. That's our job. We want them to come with us and what they're trying to you know, solve for or what they're trying to accomplish. And then we figure out how to get from point A to point B and try to work asynchronously there to force multiply our time and resources. Yeah. So it's really that single threaded ownership within the revenue ops org to those greater groups or the kind of adjacent groups. And then ensuring that there's proper expectations set on things as far as like timelines for when things need to get done more so the what needs to be done rather than the how is our job so freeing up from there and not going iterating on solutioning with these teams when they should be working with prospects or customers yeah so i'm sure you probably get inundated with asks right whether it's a marketer or a, or a sales what are some of the best practices in terms of servicing those internal customers? And you probably have to say no to a lot of things. How do you do that in an effective way that where people don't, don't get upset because they're like, my priority should be your priority. You're like, well, actually, I serve a larger group than just yourself. So any ideas in terms of how you service those internal customers? Yeah, but certainly it's not first in, first out. That's a mistake I'm sure I made early in my career and I'm sure a lot of people have made. It really does come down to uh, understanding effort versus impact and vice mm -hmm. versa, yeah. as well as 
once again, understanding what are the ultimate goals. Does this, is this a point solution or is this threaded into a larger process or piece of the model? And is this going to be impactful of business right now? You don't say no to stuff. You say we can prioritize this, but then we have to deprioritize that. And there's always the backlog. So say we do have some time and some cycles or capacity, we can go in the backlog and kind of pick and choose stuff out of there that would make sense at that time. And once again, stakeholder alignment is all about setting the correct expectations on just timing and the capacity of the team. Yeah. Effort versus impact. I, I, I like that. And, and also sort of goes back to, I think, a previous question that we talked about, which is staying connected to the overall strategy. Like, how is this ask impacting, you know, the business initiatives that we're trying to drive, you know, r- right now? What about voice of the customer? So, you, you know, RevApp sits in a really interesting position in terms of you're, you're working with so many different stakeholders. You're able to hear the voice of the customer from different pockets. What role does RevOps play in bringing the voice of the customer to your internal stakeholders? Yeah, really, I think it's not only, I'd say the managers are managers of the managers, but it's really getting down to the field, conducting what I would call end user interviews, because there are, are the sales folks or even anyone on the front line, those are really our end users. So conducting regular interviews, intaking their feedback, good or bad in organized manner, spinning that up into an output of either roadmap or it's, oh, we actually already have this day and maybe we need to plan some re-education or enablement on a specific topic and really bucketing it as this is a potential gap and improvement. This is more of an enablement issue, or this is something we need to work on with another group. Like they, they it may have come up to us, but it might be legal or marketing that we need to flag this to and work with them on. And then outside of that, it's really having a regular kind of like cadence for an advisory board or what we'd call an internal advisory board where um, folks from different groups come and sit in and just give regular feedback. And we take that and put it in roadmap and identify the gaps. This is something we are actually just spinning up here just because we've been iterating and moving through things really quick and it's been difficult to dust settle, but now we're at the place where we do need to take a step back and make sure that we aren't just creating a monstrosity in our systems. There's overly burdensome process. And we said need to circle back on enablement for a few critical processes right now. So it's something we are just speeding up right now. And that's how I look at it is all the teams we support, those are our customers, just like a prospect or a customer to the actual customer facing folks. Yep. Let, let's change gears a little bit. And let's talk about uh, data because when every organization that, I, that I've worked with We've always struggled with maintaining high quality data for our go-to-market teams. And as I talked to across our customer base, it seems maintaining quality data is always a challenge. Why do you think that is for most organizations? Yeah, I really think that tends to go with the pace of the business. If we're changing strategy on a dime, maybe we're looking at customers in a different way. We're rolling out a bunch of new processes, ripping and replacing stuff. I think a lot of change and organizational thrash causes that. Also, you say you, you realize you need this data point or this piece of data from a process, and this is totally new. It's sometimes like adoption or making it in a way where it's not causing additional friction in the sales cycle. So it's a very fine line. So I find a lot of that's either the controls are too tight in the system to actually get the, the data you need for the analytics, or it's too loose. It's just really finding that sweet spot. Yeah. And if the business is iterating, transforming fairly regularly, it's hard to get to a solid state to actually be like, okay, these are our metrics. Now we have it trending. We've been doing the same thing for a while. So that's generally what I've seen is businesses that are growing or shifting or changing leadership. They want to look at things a different way. 
It's really coming down to consistency and finding that sweet spot into something that's not too draconian or too tight on the sales yeah. team or go to market teams and or something that's not too loose where you're just not going to get adoption and or just get data that's not very useful. I love the analogy there. It's either tight or too loose. Is it a little bit of a, a give and play, meaning let's start with these processes. Let's see how they're, for the, we're getting the data that we need. And if we're not, we need to just turn those knobs a little bit to, to make them tighter or looser. Is that kind of the, the advice you might give to iterate off of that? Yeah. And I think the customer life cycle or the customer journey, it's basically an unfinished product at all times. So you're constantly iterating through it. You got to yeah. roll stuff out and then it's not going to be a hundred percent correct. So you got to be able to go back and have something that's flexible enough where you can iterate and dial it forwards or backwards, depending on what is needed and what you're seeing. Yeah. Um, and like I said, no, the only issue is that it does take time and the business may need this stuff right now or very in the near future. So you're operating off of assumptions and incomplete data or things fueling your analytics until you actually get like a trend or you get into a more of a solid state. But it's an imperfect, unfinished product that you're constantly developing. You're never going to be like, we are 100% done with our customer journey or Salesforce is 100% perfect and all our tools work great. You're constantly working on everything and transforming your process or tooling with the business. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about deals, right? We've seen many purchasing decisions. It probably started just before the pandemic, but even more scrutiny now where even in down segments where it used to be maybe just be an enterprise, more participation from other stakeholders are needed as part of the buying committee. They're getting much larger, right? I think this eight to 12 people are, are involved in these deals now. Yet most organizations right now don't do a really good job of capturing that buyer committee behavior. They might set a validation rule at the beginning where a rep has to put one owner on, on the uh, opportunity. And then as the deal unfolds, they never go back and update that, right? Why do you think that's a problem? Like capturing that sort of buyer committee behavior or being able to, to act off of that? Yeah, I mean, unless you have really tight QA from, I'd say the frontline management, it's really difficult to say, oh, you need to have X amount of people attached to this opportunity because it does vary and it's very subjective. It's pretty easy now to add people to an op and ingest new contacts or even map out spheres of influence within like tooling and Salesforce, something like we are working on doing right now with some enhancements we've been doing to LinkedIn and Sales Navigator and some things there, which are pretty cool. But um, usually it's, you do an account plan or a QBR and it's just like an org chart, like on a slide. And then like the next question is, are, are all these people actually marked on the opportunity for their like role? And usually the answer is no. It's a very hard thing to regulate, but something that um, is beneficial to the entire company, everything from your marketing ABM programs, sales leadership, or our C-levels knowing who they need to be like interfacing with, in the post-sales understanding whose responsibility is to the AM, who are they covering, who is our CSM covering, who's a TAM cover. It's beneficial to the entire organization, but it's definitely something that takes a lot of rigor and a tight process around and very clear expectations. But once again, it is still very subjective. You could have a million dollar deal with two people as stakeholders. You could have a $50,000 deal with 20 stakeholders. It really depends from deal to deal. So it's a very hard thing to eyeball at this point. And, and I think some of that can be automated in the sense of picking up who's been invited on the calendar and who's participated and so on and so forth. But a part of that is also going to be qualitative as well, where the reps got to go in and say, yeah, this person's been involved in a lot of meetings, but they're not necessarily a champion or a coach, right? And so there's going to be a little that, I see, I think, a balance between how much of that we can automate and how much of that we still have to ask the rep to go in and weigh in on. 
Yeah, there's definitely a, a large human factor here. And like anything where there is a large human factor, that's going to be the more difficult kind of process or insight to get because it, it, it is labor intensive and it's not something that's going to be static forever. So as a company changes, as people cycle in and out of a company or say you move over into different groups or selling into different business lines of the company, some of the stakeholders may be the same, but there may be totally new players on the board, depending on who and what you're selling to within even the same company. That's right. Especially, I think that you'll see that a lot post the deal gets signed. Now we're going to hand it over to the success organization. And those players that were involved in the sales process are not the ones that we're dealing with in the delivery, right? And so yeah. it's understanding who was involved, what the role was, and then the new people that are coming into that as well in, yeah. on, the, on the delivery. Yeah, and also a great trend I've been seeing too, especially in a lot of the enterprise orgs, is the buyers or the people in the valuation. None of them may even be the economic buyer. There's probably someone two or three levels up who end up being the one who have to sign the paper, or they don't mention they have a rigorous procurement process, and the procurement person isn't even brought in until contract's ready to be signed. And then they come back with a bunch of other stipulations or asks and things that need to get figured out. It's almost like you're doing a second negotiation. And that, I've seen that prolonging a lot of enterprise buying cycles. And even there's not a lot of, I'd say, signatory or buying authorization at many levels. It's usually now up to a C-level at a lot of companies that have to sign off on everything. So that's what I've been seeing. And that's stuff that doesn't necessarily surface until the end of the process when you think you have this thing over the line. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's good now is because the, the systems are getting better and we're collecting more information, we can look at the deals post-close, the past hundred deals that we've had in the enterprise segment and say, you know what, we're seeing that this particular role needs to get involved in order for us to get this over the line. Let's take a look at that, our current pipe and look at the outliers in terms of when that role wasn't involved. We can start prompting our reps to try to ask questions to get those roles involved yeah. early in the process. Yeah, that's spot on. That's definitely solved with actually having a very firm joint execution plan. And these are the questions they need to ask. Okay, so how does this work? Do we need a PO? Does this go through procurement? Who will actually be signing this? When are we going to be introduced to this person? Do you use internal or external legal counsel? Who's going to actually be reviewing the contract and understanding a lot of those things up front and putting names to steps and actually understanding what dates you're agreeing upon for the milestones? Yeah. Implementation of MedPick and the mutual action plan are trends that we're seeing across all of our clients. Yeah. For, for that exact reason. So let's talk about GRR and NRR, right? They seem to be the metrics right now that in the past 12, eight months at, uh, at least, everyone's focused on. What role does RevOps have in helping identify, spot, and de risk some of that downsell and churn? Yeah, I think that really does come down to um, working on actually setting the correct segmentation and coverage model for types of customers. But then also understanding within a segment, there's a spectrum or range. There's people who are really happy and that are large and that are low touch. And there's people that are need white glove and are going to be like very high touch in the same segment. There's going to be customers that are deemed strategic that are not of a high value to the company from an ARR perspective or a revenue perspective, but they're going to need inverse support for their size. So really segmenting them correctly, giving the field the correct analytics. Like we, we're a consumption-based, volume-based business. Looking at week-over-week -week trends, understanding when you see dips and spikes in their usage. Is it actually, as a dip, is that actually like them possibly being a churn risk? Or is it they're a seasonal business? For instance, we have a lot of online gaming. So during football season, sports betting, if their usage spikes after it dips until you get to basketball playoffs or something. So understanding if it's a seasonal business or if you see a spike on something, it's a customer, oh, this is odd, they're really small. 
Is there something wrong with their utilization? Are they properly implemented? Are they sending duplicative volume on the same call or customer coming through there, like our platform? Yeah. So it's really understanding and having a regular form where you look at dips and spikes, putting context around those and giving the field the analytics to have that context in those forums and those meetings. And then once again, it all goes back to as well as properly segmenting your customers and ensuring they have the proper coverage and support for however we internally deem them as far as level of strategically important or like how important they are to our business from an overall revenue ARR perspective. Mm -hmm. So I just came back from your neck of the woods. I was at Dreamforce last week. You couldn't have a conversation without somebody talking about AI, right? It's just everywhere. How much do you think of AI for RevOps is hype? What are the low-hanging use cases that you see maybe AI solving for RevOps? Yeah, um, I think right now it's very new. And a, a lot of these companies that are integrating it, they're trying to be ahead of the curve, but it is like a black box as far as Initial use cases and some of like the first stuff that's coming out that has come out is really around call recordings, call sentiment, like actually being able to parse out a conversation using just a transcript and give overall takeaways and something for a leader to easily digest. I could go through 50 calls in a half hour by just reading excerpts and getting overall sentiment scores. Also, AI, I think right now, if you think about like forecasting tools like Clarion stuff, it's really a machine learning, a little more algorithmic. But if you can integrate an actual AI and something that can learn a bit quicker and they're not just based on a model, perhaps that would be a good use case where AI is forecasting. But right now, I think this is a hot new topic. And I see a lot of it as like a black box and still a little nascent. That's why a lot of companies like Salesforce right now are giving away AI capabilities. Like they can't fully productize it yet because they don't actually know how good it's going to be or if it's going to work or not. And so much of it is precipitated on you have to have good data to, to have good output, right? And so a lot of these AI offerings are being built and they're hyping it, but if it's not built on good data, what good is it going to do for you? Yeah. And you could say that with a lot of tools out there, free AI, like it's yeah. garbage in, garbage out. If you don't have a solid processes and correct guardrails in place, whatever data is being collected across systems and being ingested into something, it's not going to be great. Or that could be said by any of our business intelligence tools. Sure. The chart and the visual looks great, but how's the underlying data? Is this even right? That's a very classic trap. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. Do you, do yeah. you think that a lot of these LLMs that a lot of these are being built on, one of the big challenges right now is if you're taking your customer data and you're putting it in here, you're going to be worried about security, right? In terms of taking that customer data, putting in that. What do you think the, the implications of that are going to be on privatized information or customer information and how that's going to affect the application of the different AI tools? Yeah, I mean, I think it just all depends at the end of the day where this AI is actually hosted. Is it onshore like AWS servers that are governed by all the same regulations that we already have our product on and all of our PII on? I think it's just going to have to just follow the same governance. And once again, I don't know the implications of some of the stuff like AI does is unpredictable. Like, oh, we, we built this AI and now it's doing things that we didn't think it knew how to do or what it'd be doing, like a little bit of Skynet or something. So as long as they keep it hosted onshore and it's following generally the same regulations as all the kind of cloud infrastructure, AWS stuff, it's probably fine. But also I feel with chat GTP, GTP and all the other ones, it's doing stuff that they didn't know it could do. So that's what's a little possibly alarming. So I'd say I'm a little skeptical still on the whole, and especially when you're dealing with sensitive customer data. If I was working at Uber still with the way the security GRC process is there, none of that stuff would be making it through right now. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has a lot of promise, but you got to be, you know, one eye, you know, really focused in terms of the, the security piece of it. 
Okay, so there's been a lot of activity going on in the revenue intelligence space, right? Clary came in Buckgroove, Gong launched their sequencing product, ZoomInfo's got a sequencing product. Everybody's trying to build the Uber platform, which is going to be the one place where, you know, reps live. What are your thoughts? Are you thinking that best of breed is, is, is still the right approach? Or do you think the one consolidated application that might not have the best capabilities, but they've got good enough? What's your position on that? Yeah, so I'm definitely, and I, my head of commercial systems, we're definitely in the same mind that a consolidation of tools is a good thing. We spend more time as a team QAing and diagnosing multiple integrations across systems, especially if one system ingests information and data from another, and then Salesforce is in the middle. We spend more time debugging, QAing these things. There's more systems that go down and for us to have to figure out what actually caused it. So I think a consolidation of tools is great, but you really need to understand what you're trying to solve for and what level of sophistication you need from each piece. Do you need something as powerful as an outreach for your sales team or does a more simplistic functionality that's still clean and works well with a groove? And then you end up getting Clary for forecasting and then they have Clary, which they have the co-pilot now, which is basically would be a gong replacement. That could be a really good angle. It just depends on what features and what level of sophistication you need in each piece. But I think something playing on a single platform that covers what you've had five different tools for before is a good thing. Yeah, one data model, right? Yeah, for, for, for sure. All right, let, let's change the questions up a little bit. Let's make it a little bit more fun and interactive, not so much about shop, but we would love to hear from you with more rapid fire type questions. What's the one book that you've read recently that you really loved? Yeah, I just finished up an autobiography on Bill Bowerman and the men of Oregon. I ran track in college, so I've always been like a, you know, big track and field enthusiast and Eugene, Oregon and University of Oregon is the mecca of track. So it was a very interesting autobiography and I learned a lot more about him than I, than I didn't know before. Yeah. What was your event in college? Uh, I ran the 400 and the 200. You're fast. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, UCSB was a mid-major conference, but I made it work for me. Yeah. What's your favorite part about working in RevOps? I think my favorite part is just really having a good macro view of a company and touching every group and having that context. I don't know how I would just working in another role where I wasn't so broad and touching so many different things. Yeah. What's your least favorite part about RevOps? Or, or I guess ask maybe a different way. Like, What's really hard about your job? What's really hard is something we touched on is like all the competing priorities. So being broad is great, but then you are um, exposed to a lot of different groups with a lot of different uh, competing priorities. And so it's really figuring out how to prioritize and temper expectations and keep everyone rowing in the same direction. So it's, with being the connective tissue comes a, a lot of pressure and yeah, a lot of there's could be a lot of cooks in the kitchen sometimes when you're yeah. trying to get, get something done. Yeah. What's one piece of advice that you've received from someone that stayed with you that you'd maybe like to share with the audience? Yeah, something early in my career is make sure you get everything in writing, um, especially in this role. People forget what they say all the time or forget what they agree to. So make sure you get explicit sign off on everything in writing, especially if it's touching bookings, revenue, compensation. And I have trouble keeping stuff straight sometimes myself. So unless it's written down and I have it somewhere and I know where it is, you always got to have receipts. 100%. I've lived through that. All right, kind of last one for you. What's the one piece of advice for people who would like to have your job someday? I would say make sure you try out a few different companies, a few different segments, a few different models. It's going to be important to understand everything from SaaS, 
consumption, working at a series A company or individual contributor, going to a mid to late stage venture, working at a publicly traded company, understanding all the different stages of a company and how that progression works, as well as just exposing yourself to as many different types of products, spaces as possible, be it two-sided marketplace, just like regular SaaS, fintech, security, just get as much exposure as possible so you can be as well-rounded as possible to set you up for success. Are there any skill sets? Hey, you've been in sales ops. You got to go learn marketing ops. Or you're a really good executor, but we need you to be more of a a program manager. Would would your advice also fall into like try to get as much lateral uh, understanding as well? You know, this is an observation based on what you said, but what were your thoughts there? Yeah, it's definitely a diverse group of functions that roll under revenue operations org, even if it's not in a formal capacity. Like if you see a project or an initiative that you want to be exposed to or work on, like ask to be involved, ask your manager. It's not necessarily something you'll be owning like going forward or something you'll be owning in the future, but understanding it and being a part of it is going to be super critical in your own career development. Yeah, love that. Well, Callum, I know we're coming up on time. I just want to say thank you very much. I've had a really fun conversation with you, learned quite a bit. That's a wrap for this episode of the Revenue Lounge. I want to thank you again and we'll be in touch. All right, sounds good, Randy. All right, take care. Bye.